Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. You know, a lot of you out there might be familiar with the show, very popular talk show on ESPN. Pardon the interruption, Tony Kornheiser and uh, Mike Wilbon, who um, I'm thinking about today because they have a list of topics for the show and they actually have a countdown for each topic and a buzzer that stops the continuation of one topic so they can move on to the next. And I say that because today's there's so much to talk about on this final day of the legislative session. I wish I had that buzzer at my disposal. But we're going to talk about all that's happening on this sine die day at the uh, under the Gold Dome. We're going to talk about the Georgia Supreme Court argument yesterday on the state's restrictive abortion law. Um, I'll probably ask the panel to talk a little bit about how um, Mayor Dickens yesterday was very forceful in saying he's moving ahead with building the uh, training center, police training center, and and there's so much more going on. Um, So let me get right to the panel. And and I want to start with my two colleagues from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, because they are both going to be putting in incredibly long days today, covering the final day of the session. So I'm especially grateful to have as my regular Wednesday partner, Greg Bluestein. Greg, thank you. I know it's going to be a long day, and the fact that you're here means a lot to me and I think to all of our listeners. Bill, I wouldn't miss it for the world, but I'm already here at the Georgia House. If you hear some ambient noise, that is just lawmakers and lobbyists and staffers getting ready for the final countdown. We'll be here till 2 a.m. <laughs> it's, it's good to be here this early. Oh, my God. Patricia Murphy usually joins us on Mondays, but because it's sine die, Patricia, you for you too, I'm just so grateful you're with us today. I assume you're going to be there for the long haul as well. Yes, I'll be here for the long haul, Bill. I, too, am I'm not at the Capitol. I'm near the Capitol in a parking lot. So if you hear anybody um, paying for parking or a leaf blower, that's what's going on. Yeah, we'll see if there's any gas-powered uh, leaf blowers going uh, uh, in your <laughs> neighborhood. Uh, we also have two of our favorite political science professors on the show today, Tammy Greer from Clark Atlanta University. Hi, Tammy. Good morning, Bill. I don't have anything spectacular like Patricia or Greg to introduce with. Just say good morning. <laughs> well, we're glad you're here. And, and Audrey Haynes, political science professor and director of the Applied Politics Program at the University of Georgia. You know how much we enjoy having you on the show. Thank you for being here, Audrey. Well, good morning. The only thing I can say is I have a lot of interns at the Capitol there with um, Patricia and Greg, and they're all very tired, too. Um, And I think that they're very excited about this day, even though they're going to be there late. Um, All right. Well, let's get right to it. I think what we'll do is let's we'll talk about the Supreme Court arguments uh, which were made yesterday, the effort to overturn the Georgia abortion law, which lower court has already ruled can be uh, in effect, while the state Supreme Court looks at the argument. So we'll get to that 
in a little while because I know it's an important <laughs> issue for many of you out there. But it is Sine Die Day, so so Greg, let me start with you on some of the things that we uh, are, are probably going to be watching for the the high profile measures that we've all talked or written about throughout uh, the session, and one of them. Um, is the school vouchers bill, Greg. It just by way of explanation, the bill would provide $6,500 a year in vouchers for students to attend, either attend private schools, or I think it also includes um, money for homeschool for uh, supplies yep. and all that s sort of thing. Greg, you know that the legislature, primarily Republicans, have been looking at trying to get a real school voucher measure in place for years. And this year, because Governor Kemp has now publicly come out and supported it, it looks like it may actually happen. Yeah, this might be the biggest cliffhanger of the day, Bill, because the governor came out unequivocally in support of it. We've always known he supports what conservatives call school choice, but he hasn't taken a stance on this particular issue until earlier this week when he went on a radio show over at WSB with Eric Erickson and said that he supports this. He wants House lawmakers to pass it. It's already passed the Senate. And then just yesterday, on the off day between the two, the final legislative days, he met with House Republicans behind closed doors and some twisted some arms, right? Said, you know, this is my priority. I want this passed. Really made an effort to push this personally one-on-one -on -one with a number of House lawmakers. So this is going to be a test of his clout because there's a lot of, it's not a party line issue, even though it seems like that in the Senate it passed party lines. But a lot of these Republican lawmakers are also concerned because they're hearing from their local school boards. They're hearing from local elected officials who are saying that taking $6,500 per student away from their public school systems could really undercut public education throughout the state. I, Patricia, I, let's follow up on that because I do think it's interesting that Kemp did go into the Republican caucus and tell House members wh where the bill had stalled because of some of the objections that uh, Greg points out some Republicans had. And he made it clear he wants this bill to pass. And let as I turn it over to you, let, let's also remind our listeners that $6,500 is, I think, approximately what the state spends on each student who attends public school in Georgia. So what they basically are doing is saying, if this bill passes, the money follows the student. Yes. And obviously, Democrats have um, made a, a major argument against that, uh, saying that the state should put that money into strengthening existing public schools. If there are schools that parents aren't pleased with, then the state should work hard to improve those schools and improve their performance. Um, and as Greg said, obviously the um, the school boards have said that they are really concerned about this. They don't want in a year when budgets are shrinking instead of growing, as they have been lately, they don't want the state to be on the hook for this very large outlay for schooling that does not support public schools and then also need to 
fully support public schools at the same time. That's where that concern is. Um, but Kemp has been getting a ton of pressure, and I've mentioned this a couple of times. He's been getting a lot of pressure from the Wall Street Journal editorial board. They have written two editorials in the last week pushing Kemp on this issue and saying, where does Brian Kemp stand on this? Why is Brian Kemp silent on the school choice issue, as they call it? They also compared him to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and said that DeSantis had made his position clear. Why hasn't Brian Kemp? Um, this was not on the list of priorities that he put forward for Republicans at the beginning of the session. But now as he's come under more and more scrutiny and pressure, he has gone in to his own members and started whipping votes for this and saying, this is now very important to me. Audrey? Yeah, I, I would add that, you know, there's some very powerful national lobbying groups that have been pushing um, school vouchers, and they're probably utilizing some of their pressure to put uh, to go through um, newspapers like The Wall Street Journal to target individual governors, because these bills have passed in over 20 states when the Supreme Court, and I think it was um, Carson v. Macon, made it so that religious schools would not be excluded from voucher programs. That gave it more emphasis. But the one thing I would add to this is, aside from being um, popular and something that might you know, increase the popularity of the governor among um, certain individuals, the criticisms for voucher systems are that you know, if you think about where private schools are, they're not in rural Georgia, you know, so, you know, a lot of people often talk about rural Georgia and, you know, you know, strengthening it so that it becomes economically more, um, you know, viable. But suburbia is the place where most of these private schools are. And, you know, in, in a long time ago, even Alec and some of these other organizations have given off given up the rhetoric of saying that vouchers are, you know, to help equalize students who don't have the ability to move um, some of the, um, you know, the, the we're going to do this for minority groups and the underprivileged. It really is more viewed as, you know, there are people primarily in suburbia who will be very happy to take this money, they've been complaining about it, and use it towards their private school education for their kids. Um, so we're going to see that. I would also add, this does add more government because there's going to be a commission. There's going to be a parent review. There's going to be a process that has to be evaluated. So for Republicans who argue about some of the other things that Democrats have been talking about, you know, this is going to add more red tape or bureaucracy. So does this program. Um, Tammy, let me uh, add, though, to this conversation. I was looking at private school tuitions in the state. And um, according to uh, the private school review uh, organization, the average tuition for private school in Georgia is um, uh, $11,429. That's for all schools, whether it's elementary or high school. Uh, according to this organization, high schools uh, are a little bit more, $12,000 plus. Uh, so... You know, one of the arguments against it is you know, this is helpful, but it doesn't get people uh, who ha have limited means any closer to sending their kids to uh, private schools. Right. And it also um, first first, I just think that the argument about school choice is false um, because um, if you have the choice to send your children to private school if you so choose to. Um, so the the shaping of the argument mm. um 
kind of softens it a little bit um, to have more people, particularly those bill who cannot afford to pay half of the tuition that would remain after the 6500 uh, 6, um, still may not have the ability um, funding to go to a private school. Um, so when uh, these particular organizations do this, um, I agree wholeheartedly with Audrey that it is another layer of government and bureaucracy. It allows for, it does the opposite of what um, those that are conservatives um, and Republicans who talk about smaller government. Um, and if I could also be so bold to say it's almost an extension of having social welfare for parents to get that additional 6500 to supplement, um, you know, private school education. So it, the argument, while, you know, one could hear it and, and as a parent, you want the best education for your children. At the same time, what happens to the children whose parents cannot afford that additional um, balance to pay for, you know, that amount, though, then you're deprived. Um, public school um, from with those parents with those babies who cannot afford to go there. So you're you're starving public education um, to supplement private schools, um, which is a very interesting redistribution of wealth. Greg, and Bill, if this measure ends up passing, it could be the single biggest testament or 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 test, I guess is another way to put it, of our state's new legislative leaders. Because just a year ago, House Speaker David Ralston put the kibosh on this. I mean, a national advocacy group that was supporting school vouchers sent out flyers targeting House Republicans who were deemed not supportive of this. Speaker Ralston at the time said this was the dumbest political move he's ever seen in his decades-long political career and said, it ain't going anywhere in my chamber. Now, a year later, with after his after his death, there's a new House Speaker. There's a new lieutenant governor who supports this idea, and there's now a governor who's putting his his might behind it. So we'll see. It's a transformative change, and it really could be the biggest debate of the day. Uh, Patricia, before we move on, just a couple other points. I, I don't know the bill as well as all of you who follow this every single day down there at the Capitol do. Um, are there restrictions? Is is any parent, regardless of income level, eligible for this sixty five hundred dollar uh, a stipend? So let me tell you that the early version of this bill did not have means testing in it. And that was a major, um, a major criticism, criticism of it. I, let me check quickly to see if anything has changed in that piece. Another criticism is that it does not have to go only to uh, private school tuition. It can also go to tutoring. It can also go yeah. to supplies. It can also go to homeschooling. Um, but again, with homeschooling, you have a very small population that really has that kind of flexibility to stay home with their kids and be homeschooling them. If you have working parents, that's just not an option. And so the the broad swath of this of what this bill would cover was a major criticism of it, um, particularly on the House side early on. But let me check on the means testing really quickly. Well, I, I appreciate that. I didn't mean to turn that into a quiz. I apologize for that. Um, <laughs> I'll make one uh, just one other observation um, about this. The state does have two limited kinds of vouchers uh, in place. One, I believe, is for developmentally disabled uh, students who may require special education, but that's a small 
number of students and isn't uh, terribly expensive, I don't think. Uh, the other is the private uh, voucher. In other words, um, the state has uh, passed statutes which allow people to contribute private funds uh, to a pool of money, which can then be used to send some students to private schools. But as Greg, Patricia, and uh, uh, Audrey and Tammy have pointed out, and, and Greg particularly, this would be landmark legislation in the state of Georgia. Um, let's move on. Patricia, well, Patricia, you're, <laughs> thank you. You're doing some research for us. So let me start <laughs> with Greg on this. Um, uh, Greg, the the mental health bill, you talked about David Ralston a couple minutes ago. His legacy, uh, unfortunately, his untimely death has absolutely fixed what we already kind of knew was going to happen anyway. His legacy in the state legislature will always be the fact that last year he championed a measure that passed that begins to expand and bring Georgia's mental health systems up to a standard that they've never reached before. Now, the second year of this effort, the additional uh, measures that uh, are needed are stalled in the Senate, and there are significant questions as to whether the Senate is going to pass them. Um, I got a note from Mary Margaret Oliver, who was one of the original sponsors of this, who was listening to the show Monday when we talked about it. And, and she frankly said she kind of despaired about the trouble this bill was having in the Senate. Where does it stand today? Yeah, and Bill, to be clear, too, when Speaker Ralston championed this legislation mm -hmm. last year, he always said it was the part of a multi-year process. It was never going to be a one-and-done thing. And the House leaders expected to pass the second phase this year and did so sweepingly in, in their chamber, um, but has run into some problems in the Senate. Part of it is part of this whole House-Senate fighting over hospital regulations. It was made clear to me um, uh, as I was reporting this that Senate leaders were sort of dangling this over as sort of the hostage, you know, situation as, as a victim of the infighting. If if Burt Jones doesn't get his way, Lieutenant Governor doesn't get his way on hospital regulations, then this bill could be caught in the crossfire. But there are some concerns from Senate lawmakers that go beyond that infighting over the cost of this measure. There's a fiscal note of about $71 million. And also they see it as a expansion, a limited expansion of Medicaid. So right now, it, it does not have a very uh, positive outlook for passing, at least in its entirety. Uh, the bill itself, the overall bill, has stalled out. There's a chance that smaller parts of it kind of get tacked on to other legislation. So there's a chance portions of it can move forward, but the comprehensive second phase, which would significantly boost mental health resources, uh, doesn't look like it's going to pass tonight. Um, Tammy, Greg makes a point about the fact that one of the issues that some Republicans in the Senate have is a, a, a portion of the bill which would um, expand Medicaid uh, for people who are dealing with um, um, mental health issues. Um, so there is a real strong uh, partisan political component to some of the objections. Sure. At the same time, though, Bill, I also um, would like to say that some of these mental health challenges uh, rolled into um, interactions with law enforcement. Um, and so, mm -hmm. and then we have some challenges with 
you know, the way that law enforcement then interacts with those that are having a mental health crisis at that moment, not at the fault of law enforcement. It's just the skills and abilities, um, you know, to to um, control or to handle or to uh, de-escalate a particular situation because they lack the training. So not having mental health access um, then kind of exacerbates you know, some of these interactions with law enforcement and and, and then subsequent injury. So I, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm curious if that type of uh, scenario has been discussed in these deliberations um, to take it away from, you know, the, the partisanness of, of, of expanding uh, Medicaid, um, a, a pseudo expansion um, under the Affordable Care Act or something akin to it rather than the whole health of those that are here in Georgia and then the ripple effect that could take place if mental health is not um, fully addressed, uh, particularly with those with noted uh, mental health um, situations. Um, uh, Audrey, um, they, the, the cost, 70 plus million dollars, is maybe a lot of money. But we're also talking about a year in which uh, Governor Kemp and his budget uh, and other legislators are approving vast sums of money be spent on things like property tax, income tax, uh, refunds. So it isn't as if uh, money is really, in a, in a, in a, you know, short in this year's session. No, um, obviously that is uh, absolutely true. I, I would argue that uh, one way that we should look at what's going on with this uh, bill is to think about the leadership dynamics within the uh, structure right now. If, for example, Speaker Ralston, who's greatly missed, um, were in power uh, today, it, you wonder what the nature of this discussion would be. This is something that's pretty important to a lot of people in the state of Georgia. It's a, it is a, it should be a priority piece of legislation because, as Tammy mentioned, it has an uh, impact on so many things um, relating to mental health, um, treatment, uh, families, um, the law, uh, just generally health overall. But so much uh, activity and attention early on in the, the House and the Senate was given to some other uh, more controversial pieces of legislation that you know, probably mm. affect a very handful of people. So I would say also citizens really should talk to their their uh, representatives you know, and sort of question why so much focus on, um, for example, uh, you know, um, what was it? SB 140 versus something like this bill that now is in the Senate Health and Human Services Committee, which also has a lot of bills sitting in there. Um, and, you know, why hasn't it been given the attention that it needed? Some of those things could have been ironed out. Patricia, it strikes me that this is another one of those measures we may be watching until just before midnight. Uh, tonight, because as Greg points out, the Senate still does have some power to hold it hostage for other things they may want to get the House to go along with them on. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And this is a bill that passed the House of 163 to 3. There was almost no opposition to it. Um, And it is, as Greg said, it's a follow-on to last year's mental health effort. And you really can't consider the effort complete, nor did Speaker Ralston, until bills like this continue to pass one after another. There's a piece in there that has been requested specifically by law enforcement agencies. There's funding for children who are struggling with mental health issues. There's funding to create more bed space for people. Right now, even if you or a family member are having a mental health crisis, it's very difficult to get inpatient treatment because there just aren't the beds. There are not enough staff for it. This bill is designed to handle all of that. It's not a partisan measure, but it has gotten swept up in an intraparty fight and a power struggle, to be honest with you. And so um, while lawmakers are hearing about everything else, uh, this is something that uh, it in my opinion, it'd be really a shame if it um, if it didn't get through this year. It's an entire another year to wait for funding for the type of measures that the entire General Assembly largely agrees with. All right. Um, thank you for that conversation, all of you. Um, I want to get to our first break of the show. When we come back, I'll ask the panel if there if I'm missing anything. I know we haven't talked about sports betting. But we've talked that into the ground on previous shows. It is still hanging in the fire. And I'll ask whether uh, uh, they think it's going to pass or not. But then I think we should spend a few minutes talking about some very controversial measures that, in fact, have passed, in some cases, signed already by the governor, in others, awaiting his signature. We'll do that. We'll talk about the state Supreme Court and its abortion arguments yesterday. Um, But first, these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Audrey Haynes, Tammy Greer, Patricia Murphy, Greg Bluestein joined me for today's uh, Political Rewind. Signy die day at the state capitol sometime around midnight or so. They will gavel the session to a close. Although, Patricia, I've said on the show a couple times, well, back in my day covering the legislature, everybody really did believe midnight was an absolute deadline, hence that famous a uh, picture, a photograph of Denny Groover, Denmark Groover, leaning over from the gallery above the house floor and trying to stop the hands on the clock from reaching midnight. But we've since learned, apparently, Patricia, that it, midnight really isn't that crucial, which means you guys could be really late tonight. <laughs> Well, you know, they try and keep it close to midnight, um, but midnight was not at all the the real deadline. Last year, when we saw a transgender sports bill um, tucked into a, a literally the last bill that was considered by the state Senate um, and just uh, swept across the finish line after midnight. So it's not an absolute requirement that these bills pass before midnight in order to go to be um, passed into law. But really, once you're getting toward midnight, that's the time to really start paying attention Um, with that transgender sports bill. um, 
members of the Senate literally never saw it, never saw the language before they voted yeah. on it. It was a newly drafted version of that bill tucked into a separate bill, uh, voted it up or down, did not know about it un until House members told them, hey, this bill was just in the House. It, it te I'm texting you now to let you know it's coming over to the Senate. So, um, and that was all after midnight. So it, it really does become a time of, um, you know, hijinks and happenstance, I guess. I don't know what else to call it, but it's mischief, uh, it, mischief, mischief making. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, well, that's why it's so crucial to us at the AJC to have like a full team uh, there at midnight, after midnight, and then, of course, culling through all of this language in the days that follow. Oh, well, uh, it's going to be fun for all of you, as trying and as exhausting as it is. Greg, let's talk about, I want to put the sports betting bill into a different context, if I may. Uh, it's over in the Senate. Uh, waiting for an, uh, a vote. Um, we know that um, it's tricky because there are Republicans who don't uh, want to see the bill passed, but Democrats have pretty well, at least as of yesterday, locked down saying they will not support it. And the main reason they are opposing it is because of how upset they are that the uh, legislature passed and the governor signed the transgender bill uh, limiting any kind of treatment for young people who are uh, transitioning. And and I guess, Greg, it, it's only now that I'm beginning to realize just how emotional all of this uh, debate over the transgender issue was. It, it, it had enormous emotion, particularly on the side of those who wanted to be able to continue with their young, their children's uh, transition. Bill, I think you're exactly right. It offers us a reminder that even though Democrats have very, very limited power under the gold dome, they can band together and, you know, take away some Republican priorities, damage some Republican priorities. And this is a perfect example of, of how that's happening, because Republicans cannot pass sports betting in the Senate alone with just GOP votes. They need uh, there's a number of conservative opponents who will not vote for it under any circumstance. So they need Democratic support. And a number of Democrats supported it in earlier test votes, earlier the session and, and in past sessions. But at the same time, Democrats say, hey, we can sort of exact some revenge uh, on Republicans for passing other measures that they viciously, you know, uh, they, they fervently opposed, like that transgender youth legislation that you just mentioned. So this is a scenario where we're seeing Democrats band together. Uh, the lieutenant governor's office is up actually targeted Democrats saying that, you know, they've been calling for more money for higher education and other expenses. This is their chance to do it. You can use that new revenue from sports betting to fund some of their priorities. Democrats are saying right back, then why are you taking up such controversial measures like the transgender legislation rather than looking for more bipartisan actions? Patricia, you had a pretty powerful column uh, in today's paper. And by the way, when I introduced you, I should have said you are, of course, both a political reporter and columnist. You write the Political Insider column on Wednesdays and Sundays in the paper, in addition to working with your colleague, Mr. Bluestein, there to put the jolt out on AJC.com every day. Thank, there you go. I wanted to do that more formally. But your column today, you basically said, uh, this is an, an interesting exception because your column today basically said that this session, Democrats have, for the most part, have to sit back and watch as the Republican majority passes legislation 
that Democrats in some cases are vehemently opposed to. Yeah, and it's just impossible to miss when we are down here covering the state house and the state mm-hmm. senate, um, particularly on issues like that transgender bill that came through this year. Very similar to um, changes to election laws that we saw in uh, to in twenty twenty one. Very similar to the abortion debate in twenty nineteen. Um, but even as Democrats have increased, you know, their numbers in the state house and state senate incrementally. As the minority party, they just don't have the power to pass their own priorities, nor do they have the power to really stop things like the transgender bill, no matter what they do. And there were unbelievably emotional speeches, on, particularly on the House floor, uh, members crying as they spoke, saying, you, y'all just don't, you don't know what you're about to do to these children. Um, State Representative Carla Drenner said to transgender children in the galleries, please don't kill yourselves. I know how hard this is for you, but hang in there, have hope, stay with us. And, you know, the the vote goes up, Democrats lose, no one has been swayed by these speeches. Um, even quite the opposite, some members um, said, listen, I, I understand, you know, behind closed doors telling these Democrats, I understand how you feel that I got to vote, I got to vote how I got to vote, sorry. You know, so um, until Democrats have the numbers in these chambers, they just don't, the way that it's set up, they just do not have, in most cases, the the power to really affect what they want to affect. They can partner with Republicans, and they do. They do. They can support measures that Republicans offer, which they often do. But this is, they are playing an away game until they have the power in these mm-hmm. chambers or a governor who can veto these bills. And they're they're just no closer today than they were <laughs> 15, 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah. Yeah, Audrey, uh, Janice and I actually had dinner uh, Saturday night with two of our closest friends, a husband and wife, um, who in fact have a child who went through a transition who is transgender. And it was incredibly traumatic for that family for a very, very long time. And, and at first, the, the parents were, they were puzzled, they were, they were scared. Um, they've come out of it on the other side, and all of them happy about how it all ended up going. And they were able to make the decision for themselves about how to support their child's transition, which is one of the reasons this has been so emotional, the state taking this out of the hands of families themselves. Yes, and I would also add that the notion of criminalizing doctors in this area, I mean, we are seeing uh, more and more, um, for example, we know the Senate removed uh, any of the language that protected physicians from being criminally um, or civilly liable under the law. The other thing I would point out is that there are only four states, and those are Mississippi, South Dakota, Tennessee, and Utah that have passed anything like this. Um, And and the repercussions are unknown. Um, And, you know, that's why Democrats feel so, so strongly about this, is that was it necessary absolutely necessary to do this at this time? Was it more politically motivated? And that is a question people are going to have to look back, you know, um, and and ask themselves if it was worth it, if there are real consequences for this. But I would say the other thing that's beneficial is Democrats may be able to put together coalitions in future um, elections that are tied to, to this issue. And it may motivate them to 
to work really hard because the irony is, um, you know, they're having to uh, coalesce with some of the most conservative members of the Republican Party that were voting for this bill in order to fight back and uh, on the sports betting bill. And that's uncomfortable. They would rather have the numbers. So maybe we'll see more focus on winning legislative races. Tammy, last last word before we move ahead. Sure. Um, I, I find the conversation interesting um, as well as just the whole conversation that we've had thus far. If we connect the dots on um, on what it the impact on people's health in, in the state of Georgia. Um, so it's not only this and then the impact on doctors, medical workers, um, individuals um, to dovetail with the mental health, to also dovetail with uh, women's bodily autonomy. So it appears as though um, that the common theme um, has to do with health care um, in, inside mm. of the state of Georgia um, this session. So I find that um, utterly fascinating that it seems to be um, uh, 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 consistently against health care um, in this particular session. I also find it um, interesting that uh, when we talk about these particular issues, how can we work, um, how does this work when it comes to the potential economic growth of Georgia, uh, when we're having such legislation that is dampening health care? Um, and it's interesting also to see Democrats taking the stance um, that they have been. And I'm wondering um, if this will like bolster them overall to have more competitive races so that they can no longer have to continue to be in the minority. Um, thank you for that. Uh, Patricia, one last bill that's passed uh, that uh, Democrats, for the most part, opposed, Republicans really pushed through. Uh, uh, the uh, Oversight Panel Commission, I'm not sure what the language is specifically, that will, in fact, have the power to uh, make decisions about uh, whether uh, district attorneys in local jurisdictions can are doing their jobs and, and can, in fact, be uh, removed from office. That's on its way to the governor's desk. I don't think we have any reason to think that the governor won't sign it, do we? Oh, no, the governor will certainly sign that. This was a priority for the governor. He didn't say exactly how he wanted to rein in local prosecutors, district attorneys, um, but he said at the very beginning of the term, this needs to happen. Republicans call um, some of the more progressive DAs in the state rogue prosecutors. Um, they said particularly after the abortion law went into effect and DA said that they have no intention of enforcing that law, um, not a priority for them. That really, really got Republicans who said, do your job, you know, that, and uh, the DA's in return said, hey, we have discretion to choose what our own priorities are. We were elected to do that. And the oversight are the voters. Um, those arguments really fell on deaf ears. It's getting a lot of national attention because of Fonnie Willis. Um, and um, the I think the assumption nationally that this was about reining in and controlling and almost threatening Fonnie Willis. She's very against this bill. Um, there, I think it has more to do with other local prosecutors, especially Deborah Gonzalez in Athens. Um, the, uh, the member who brought the bill and Governor Kemp, both from the Athens area, very familiar with Deborah Gonzalez. She really feels like who this was um, aimed at, but there have been other cases around the state where 
other people, other Republicans around the state said, yes, this is we need to do this. Um, all right. I, I I know we could talk about this measure for a lot longer, but now's when I want to use my pardon, my interruption buzzer, because uh, we've got some time issues uh, coming up. Before we take our final break, uh, Greg or anyone else on the panel, um, wh- what else are there? Is there anything else really crucial that I'm missing uh, that you want to make a quick comment about in terms of uh, what's happening before signy die? We're very closely watching the anti-Semitism bill as well. We we think that that ah. could actually reach a measure that this would define anti-Semitism and make it easier to prosecute as a hate crime um, and anti-Jewish acts. So mm. we'll see how that goes. But I would also like to see just overall how it seems as as tense as this day is, the, the relationship between the House and Senate, the, the temperatures have cooled down a little bit. And part of that was because mm. Lieutenant Governor Jones said, hey, certificate of needs stuff, this hospital overhaul. It's not going to reach a vote this year. I'm going to fight for it in other years. But he he kind of he kind of set set the signal that this is not going to be something that he is going to hold over, let loom over the rest of this session, um, which was important because the House was against it and Governor Kemp was against it. So I didn't really the end game was unclear. Now we're saying what we all thought this was going to end up being, which is a two year fight. Yeah, uh, this is the first year of a biennial, so nothing is dead as of signy die. All bills are still alive and can be taken up again. One last quick note about that, Greg. Um, uh, Am I correct that yesterday, perhaps, uh, the differences in the budget between the House and the Senate uh, are being pulled closer together? Is there still a hundred-plus million-dollar higher education uh, issue with the Senate wanting to take that money out? I haven't talked on this show because it's a— you know, it's in. I don't want to say too much about it. GPB is being uh, asked to take is being forced, <laughs> apparently, to take a uh, big cut as part of that higher education cut. Yeah, they're inching closer. The latest version still has the hundred five million dollars out of the higher education budget, and this is over that whole hospital fight that we were talking about earlier. The, the Senate was upset about hundred five million dollars going towards a a hospital system that could end up benefiting Wellstar Healthcare. So it's the whole long story, but um, but they are inching closer. There was some hyperbole earlier over the last couple of days about a special session to hash out the budget, but no one under the Gold Dome really believed that. And, and now uh, I'm being told both on the record and privately that there's no worry about a special session. They're going to reach an agreement over the budget just like they do every year, which is the one thing they've got to do. So they're getting closer on that one. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back. I do want to ask the panel about the uh, state Supreme Courts and the arguments about the abortion law. But first, these messages. Audrey Haynes, if you don't mind, let me start with you on on this subject. Um, The... um, the uh, uh, state's heartbeat abortion law, which, of course, uh, prevents a woman from having an abortion past about six weeks of pregnancy, when, as we have talked about many times, many women don't even realize that they are pregnant, was in the state Supreme Court, a number of litigants trying to have it overturned. The, we thought initially that the argument was going to be that Georgia's privacy laws would be the primary reason that the law might be uh, liable to be overturned. 
And that still could be an issue that could come up at another time in the state Supreme Court. But yesterday, Audrey, instead, the plaintiffs in this case argued something different. They argued that when Georgia passed the heartbeat law, which was in 2019, Roe v. Wade was still the law of the land. It wasn't until three years later that the Supreme Court in Dobbs overturned Roe. And so what they're saying, the litigants are arguing, is that it was illegal to pass this restriction while Roe was still in force. And most of the reporting, including Maya Prabhu of the AJC, Jill Nolan over Georgia Recorder, and others I've read, uh, suggests that many of the justices were pretty skeptical, at least in their questioning about that argument, Audrey. Well, that's very interesting, because if you read the two um, uh, decisions, and I'm going to preface this by saying there's a bunch of research that is, um, arguments, I should say, that has come out that says that Americans' ability um, on logic tests has gone down, has plummeted. Um, and maybe that may be at, at, um, may be at play here. But um, if you listen to it, you know, there's, there's this notion that the law is the law. And, you know, in terms of Supreme Court decisions, president means the law is the law. We have a, a case where uh, Georgia legislatures are upset that DAs are not enforcing the law because the law is the law. But in this case, they passed a piece of legislation when there was defining president where states, the federal government, everybody acted as though that was the president and it was constitutional, but we passed a law that contradicted that. And so, I mean, I would say basically when any regular person reads those um, two arguments. The one that resonates is you passed a bill when at this level there was president and the law was a law. And now you're saying something that basically is really difficult to understand. I mean, there's there's like a sort of a spatial element that, you know, if if it was if it's constitutional now, then it should have been constitutional then because the constitution is constitution and nothing's changed in the constitution. That is really hard for most people to follow. So, I mean, there's some irony here um, and it would be interesting if we had more consistency. Um, but I think politics is at play. I mean, I, I, I'm pretty, um, I, if I were a betting person, not sports betting, but if I were a betting person, I would say that uh. the court is likely to um, tell uh, Judge McBurney that the, uh, the actual legal consideration he's using is not important. Yeah, that's right. It was McBurney who initially argued that the law should be suspended because uh, of the arguments that it may be unconstitutional. Well, so, Tammy, just, you know, uh, Audrey talks about needing logical thinking, and I've certainly had to do that to understand some aspects of this. And here, here's the what the state says in answer to that. The state says, no, um, Dobbs, which was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court, essentially ruled that Abortion was never a part, a, a, a legal part of the United States Constitution. And therefore, when the Georgia legislature passed uh, the restrictive law in 2019, they weren't in any way contradicting um, uh, uh, the uh, uh, right of a woman to have an abortion because it was never in the Constitution in the first place, according to Dobbs, three years later. <laughs> 
Yeah. So it, it wasn't a thing for almost 50 years. You know, it wasn't really real um, is is how I interpret that um, that argument. I find the notion um, of of saying that Roe was decided wrong um, to be very interesting because it was because if we take that as um, if we accept it, then we're saying that the ability to uh, for women to have constitutional access to their bodies is wrong. That's what I hear when I hear that. I also hear that when um, Clarence Thomas also writes in the decision about revisiting certain cases, uh, of course, not mentioning Loving v. Virginia, which would um, um, directly impact him. And saying that um, Brown versus Board of Education was decided wrong, having these notions about expanding access in the country and to say that it is wrong, um, it is very fascinating to me to say that, you know, we are unable to have full citizenship by all these other people that needed or had courts um, to to expand, to use the elastic clause in the Constitution to expand expand the, the citizenship of those that are non-white heterosexual Christian males in this country. Uh, Patricia, one of the things that's fascinating, though, about the fact that this case was finally just heard yesterday is that it froze the legislature in place on the heartbeat law. Nobody, I mean, we assume certainly and know that there are Republicans who would like to push for even further restrictions and perhaps outlaw abortion completely in Georgia, maybe with exceptions, maybe not. But because this case has been pending, that didn't happen this session. Yeah, that's exactly right. We had been looking for measures that um, have been introduced prior and uh, even had hearings prior, including a, an effort to limit any kind of abortion um, by mail or through medication, um, an effort, as you said, just to back it all the way up to um, no abortion at after conception, um, no, no abortion at all. So those just didn't happen. House Speaker John Burns said very clearly at the beginning of the session, he wanted to see how the legal arguments played out. Um, but it does set up a, a really um, uh, a situation full of politics still, because depending on how the court rules, if this were to be struck down, even though they sound skeptical and they're questioning if it were to be struck down, um, that would immediately put the onus on Governor Kemp um, to likely try and push something through again. But this time around, uh, the Democrats have more votes than they did in 2019, and it passed by just one vote um, at that time. So uh, Republicans would not have the same vote count that they did before. So if it does not stand, we've got an entirely different scenario to start talking about. Greg? Yeah, Patricia is exactly right. As usual, Bill, this Republicans were able to kind of neutralize the thorniest issue, what could have been the, one of the thorniest issues under the Gold Dome this year by saying, you know, there's this court ruling is still pending. We we have uh, the, the 2019 law is still in effect. But if this is why they're watching it so closely, because if this this law is struck down, then Governor Kemp has maybe one of the most consequential decisions of his term. Does he fight for stricter abortion limits? Does he try to revive the 2019 law or a different law or does he just hold pat? And it's not going to be the same fight as in 2019, because as Patricia mentioned, things are tighter at the, under the gold dome now. Um, re Republicans have lost a handful of seats. They still have a majority, but they've lost a handful of seats. 
And uh, the, the makeup of lawmakers are different. Remember, even back in 2019, a number of Republicans took a walk on the vote. Um, they they just said, hey, I'm, I don't want to be any part of this. And this included some conservative Republicans as well, who you'd think would be in support of it. So it will be, it could be the battle that we talk about next year, but you know, we got to get through this one first. So Patricia, real quickly on that, um, you're the one who wrote today about, you know, Democrats being in a minority and don't have much power. If this comes back in 2024, in the year where there will be legislative elections, the question is to what extent would the uh, uh, possibility of further uh, outlawing abortions in some way play into legislative elections in some districts? Well, you know, we thought that that would be the case in 2022, to be honest with you, because uh, the Supreme Court struck down Dobbs over the summer. And so for the November elections, that was a very important test on those ballots um, and Republicans won. All right. Patricia Murphy gets the last word in today's Political Rewind. Patricia and Greg Bluestein, thank you. Have a great day at the Capitol. I hope it's energizing and exciting, not just completely exhausting. Tammy Greer and Audrey Haynes, thanks for being with us as well. Back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and please be good to one another. Bye, everybody.